Hello and welcome to Syslog uh, with Julian. Hey Julian. Hi Flo. And me, Florian. Uh, this is episode number five and today is April 29th. We are still recording remotely instead of in our secret uh, recording hideout. Um, but today's topics are a little more technical or a little more computer science based than uh, the stuff we did last week. Um, our guest today is Michael Homut. Uh, Michael uh, has been around in the Dresdner microkernel community for quite some time uh, and uh, can probably tell us some very interesting stories. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So, Michael, uh, how long have you actually been around? <laughs> for, for, for a very long time. <clears throat> so... I started being active in the Dresden operating systems community, I guess, in 1994, um, when Hermann Hertig arrived at TU Dresden as an operating systems professor. And I've been involved in the community uh, since then. But I've been actually I've been active for a little bit longer already because I maintained a hobby operating system on the Atari ST. Um, And that was even before I met Hermann. So it's 26 years plus. Uh, you continued your, your hobby um, as a computer science student. It actually, um, at first, I this, that wasn't clear at all because I wasn't very good in operating systems as, as a subject uh, in the computer science studies. Um, I had bad grades and... Um, had to struggle a lot learning about page tables and so on. <laughs> But <clears throat> in the, and actually it was one of the worst subjects that I had at the university. But uh, I had this as a hobby before and it's true, yes, I uh, made my hobby my profession um, following, um, following Hermann's arrival. Yeah, I still remember uh, first time seeing you. I think you, uh, I think you gave the microkernel construction lecture. I think there was some slight overlap. I basically showed up and then, uh, then you were gone. Um, but I still remember seeing you at the university. Um, but it's really interesting that you're um, involved for so long. So I actually didn't know that. Um, just what you said before in the in the pre-discussion we had that you actually seen life science of L3. So uh, maybe before we get into the whole L3, L4 discussion, um, can you give a bit of an, an like a slight overview of what, what this even is? So how, how was it presented to you when you showed up at the operating system chair back then? So I didn't know anything about L3 and L4 when, when I showed up there. Um, L3 and L4 are microkernel-based operating systems. Microkernels are small operating systems that uh, try to do only very little stuff, only the, th the things that an operating system kernel needs to do. And this has certain uh, advantages um, that we can talk about later if you're interested. But at the, at the time, I didn't know that. I was coming from uh, Unix-like operating systems. I made first steps at the university with Unix-based systems. And that Atari ST system I talked about also was Unix-based. So that's the the world I came from. And I got in touch with microkernels, I think, 
on one of the very first days of Professor Hertig's or Hermann's arrival, where he gathered all students and all staff members that had something to do with operating systems at that time and introduced the research subject that he wanted to work on. And at that time, he cooperated with a guy called uh, Jochen Liedtke from GMD, Gesellschaft für Mathematik und Datenverarbeitung, which is a precursor to today's Fraunhofer Gesellschaft's um, more IT-related branches. And um, he, he was a colleague with Jochen at GMD, and Jochen has been developing microkernels there already for many years um, uh, at that time. And he had first academic successes with L3. L3 was a very nice um, microkernel-based systems that can, could run or could actually emu emulate multiple copies of DOS on a single computer. <laughs> and uh, it also had f a lot of very cool features. For example, it was a persistent system. Um, you could just turn it off and turn it on again and all your state was still there and uh, it could take snapshots and uh, it had multiple um, you, it supported multiple user terminals and so it was actually quite a cool thing. It also had a built-in high-level language interpreter with which you could program it and script it um, based on a programming language called Elan which was used for teaching back in the 80s in uh, Western Germany and all of these things were cool and we liked to work on it and um, Hermann planned to use this as a basis for research into real-time operating systems and that's how it all got started in Dresden. That sounds like the scope of L3 was more the um, having a real usable system like like a Unix just with different principles? Yes it was actually so Uh, it, they even had commercial customers. I think they sold a few thousand copies to things like doctor's offices and so on, where uh, multiple users had to use a central system to, to do accounting and, and stuff. So that's how they um, actually um, made space for themselves at GMD at that time. I would assume these things are still running in some doctor's offices then. Just now they're <laughs> running in, in VMware. Um, okay, so, um, and what happened afterwards? So everyone was basically gathered. Hermann uh, introduced the research directive. And, and how did it take off? Yeah, he asked whether anyone would be interested at all. And some of us in the room said, oh, yeah, that sounds really cool. I'm interested in that. Let's do it. And... Um, Yeah, that's when we basically started working on it. In the f mm. At first, we were basically making this work on our own machines, um, doing some device driver work and so on. But research into real-time operating systems started pretty soon. And um, at the same time, Jochen also played with the idea of evolving the L3 microkernel system into the L4 microkernel, which was an even grander approach towards minimizing things. Um, he wanted his microkernel to be so small that it fit into a processor's L1 cache, which was about, I guess, four kilobytes of cache at that point in time. Could this be? I think it can, yeah. He wanted it to make an extension of the CPU, basically. And to, to, to uh, 
reach that goal, he uh, wrote it in assembler language. And um, he was of the opinion that it wasn't even portable across uh, variants of x86. So he wrote a variant for the fourth 86, and then for Pentium, he completely rewrote it. And then there was another copy of L4, or another version of L4 for the Pentium processors. I've, so I've, seen, the, I've seen the sources um, uh, in the uh, CVS at the operating system chair. They're still around. Yeah. And unfortunately, they can't be published, I think. Uh, there used to be a version called L4 Frei or something that GMD released way too late. So we begged them to release the sources so that we can do research on, in, on them and uh, modify them for our real-time um, research. But they wouldn't do it. It was really complicated. And then Jochen moved on towards IBM research. And then a few years later, they released these sources under some shareware license or something. And that's what's called... Am I mixing this up? I, but I think this is right. So they released a version that was way too old that no one used anymore. And so, yeah, that was too late. And that was also basically the starting point of my own version of L4. It came out of frustration that we couldn't access the source code of Jochen's L4. Uh, one quick thing before we uh, come to that point, and that is, can you give a, a little bit of a feeling of how minimalistic L4 is? Because I think uh, now people that only work with Linux can't imagine the the few things that L4 does. So um, L4 microkernels, and there's a whole family of them these days, they try to um, keep things really, really minimal. They um, implement basically only around three things. The first of which are address spaces, which is required for protection purposes. And then there are threads, which you need to run programs. And then uh, for these threads and address spaces to communicate, there's inter-process communication. And uh, based on these primitives, you can build entirely different operating systems on top of that in userland. And so L4s, L4 kernels try to minimize and strip everything out of the kernel, including device drivers, uh, including file systems. Nothing is in there in the kernel, and everything else needs to be implemented on user level. That's what's mm -hmm. special about L4. And uh, I mean, it, we've also spent some time in that area, and I think this has sort of stood the time. I mean, the the how the abstractions look has changed, and um, how you address them has changed. But in in general, if we say for like microkernel, it's still the same. So there's like threads, address spaces, communication, and the only thing that was actually added somehow was virtualization support. Well, there's a second thing that was added. So yes, uh, you could... Well, I wouldn't even say that virtualization was added because um, as I view it, virtualization or virtual machines is just an extended execution model for threads. So you have mm -hmm. uh, threads which can now run in different modes and this allows you to have a virtual kernel mode and virtual user modes and so on. So this is not really... Um, a stark extension of the original minimal model. But what has been added in all modern L4 kernels is, uh, is a mechanism for security. So originally mm -hmm. in L4 kernels, every thread could talk to every other thread. And um, this turned out to be 
uh, a problem for various reasons. And that's why all modern uh, L4 kernels implement something with regard to security. And usually it's based on uh, object capabilities. Hmm. Um, so capabilities are used these days for information hiding and for uh, virtualizing uh, naming. But uh, let's come back to, to your frustration in not being able to use uh, the, the official L4 sources. You said you started your own project. Yeah. So at first, that actually, that was, that was not my first project. My first project was um, doing L4 Linux because we needed a good workload for L4 to try it out. And uh, we wanted to have a Unix emulation layer and earlier experiments based on uh, BSD servers that were originally developed for the Mark microkernel had failed. And that's why we um, worked towards porting the Linux kernel to run on top of uh, L4. And that was actually my first project. And this was co-developed with L4. And the two things stabilized each other by being developed at the same time, basically. Yeah, and then we wanted to do real-time stuff, uh, sitting next to Linux, running besides Linux, not dependent on Linux. And for that, we needed the microkernel to be real-time capable. We wanted... Um, guarantees on uh, latencies. We wanted to experiment with scheduling paradigms. And for that, we thought we needed to modify the microkernel. And uh, we couldn't do that with Jochen's L4 uh, because yeah, the source code wasn't available. And also there were doubts that we could, yeah, that, that it would amend itself towards research because it was written in low-level assembly. And this ma didn't make it all that easy to think in high-level abstractions such as scheduling algorithms and so on. And that's why uh, we basically uh, worked towards uh, building a microkernel in a high-level language, which was also actually a kind of new thing, at least in the L4 world, um, where up to then uh, everyone thought that the microkernel had to be written in assembly in, to fit into the L1 cache. So that was also a deviation that we did there. Um, so to put it together a bit, um, the, um, the vision was to have uh, the microkernel at the bottom. Then you have the L4 Linux container for all the legacy applications. Um, and for the applications you really care about with uh, that may have real-time requirements, you run them as, um, as tasks directly on the microkernel itself. Exactly. That was the idea. Um, L4 Linux is a pretty interesting topic. So uh, it was a very early para-virtualized Linux version back when, was it actually called like that back then? Yes, it was. We called it L4 Linux from the start. No, I mean, the, the, was it called para-virtualization? Ah, no, no, no. Ha, that's a term that the Zen guys invented. And uh, yeah, we are jealous to them <laughs> to this day because it's much better marketing than talking about microkernels and microkernel-based Unix servers. I think virtualization is much easier to grasp and para-virtualization is a very nice term that they coined. And um, yeah, these days everyone uses that term, including ourselves, but um, at that time we didn't call it like that. I, I digged a bit in, in the papers and the uh, 
uh, SO, SOSP paper was from 1997. So SOSP is this uh, big systems conference that every uh, systems person wants to have a paper in. And you published uh, about L4 Linux in 1997, but I think then uh, Zen was um, 2003, one, two, yeah. three, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but even L4 Linux was not the first virtualized Linux. I mean, there was MK Linux before, and then even earlier, you said there was um, uh, experiments with BSD running on top of uh, Mach, probably. Yeah, that's right. Um, but um, <laughs> so the one thing I wonder about: so why does Zen? Why is Zen credit credited uh, credited for all the virtualization thing? Do, do you think it's a marketing? Is it really the marketing? Yes. Yeah, it's also ignorance. So when they published their paper, they didn't even know about us. They didn't study the literature really all that well. And they didn't cite us, they didn't quote us, so they didn't really uh, take notice of us, which is kind of normal because at that time we had a lot of trouble getting recognition and getting stuff published for various reasons. So one reason was that we were really inexperienced with that. Um, with publishing on international conferences and uh, we a second reason is that um, what we did was um, we, we really built huge systems we wrote entire kernels and we put entire systems on top of them and this was incompatible with the way that uh, the American PhD students at the time used to publish uh, in order to get, they did that in order to get uh, tenure or to, to become a professor or assistant professor. They needed a, a track record in publishing, and to achieve that, they on they usually published only tiny increments. So they started with something, it made it a little bit better with some cool idea, and then they published that idea. That was the usual mode of operation when publishing. Whereas, um, and then you could also explain that idea really really well and evaluate it really really well whereas we did a whole systems approach and wrote something from scratch and i'm i think that reviewers weren't used to that at that time and they basically thought it wasn't really a systems paper if you wrote an anti-operating system <laughs> and that's why we had trouble publishing yeah but it's also that we didn't have the neck we didn't really know how it worked what to put into the papers and uh, how to make them interesting to read that was all stuff that we had to learn over the years. Yeah, and Hermann <laughs> wasn't much of a help at that time also. So he already had a track record in publishing, but um, yeah, still we had trouble uh, publishing anyway, yeah. Uh, but beyond the uh, recognition and visibility, uh, I mean, another issue was that people thought and probably some still think that microkernels are slow. I think this was the pervasive thing. So whenever you come with some microkernel system, you sort of have to prove yourself that it's fast enough. And this yeah. also explains a bit the title of your first uh, SOSP, uh, of your SOSP uh, publication, the performance of microkernel-based systems. So it's, it's like yeah. right in the title. Um, <clears throat> so was performance actually ever a real problem for workloads? 
Yes, indeed, it was. So uh, that's also one of the marketing problems uh, that we had. We did microkernels, so we called them microkernels. And microkernels at that time kind of had a bad name because um, there were studies about the Mark microkernel, which was the dominant microkernel-based system at the time that was also used as the basis for commercial products, such as uh, digital OSF1 and um, maybe a few others. And um, the problem was that Mark was really, really slow. So it really ran like 20, 25% slower than a monolithic system. And that's why microkernels were known to make systems slow. And so when we started with our microkernel-based research, microkernels didn't have a good name. And you basically had to apologize all the time that you were doing microkernel research. Yeah, but uh, is it justified? I mean, um, my experience so far um, was always that Uh, people cared a lot about uh, performance in the microkernel community and uh, there were things that were so optimized to death that um, further optimization seemed rather pointless. Um, so I never experienced the microkernel systems to be slow or I never experienced uh, real problems with performance. It's yeah. At least not because of the microkernel. Mm -hmm. So... When I think it all depends on what you want to do. If you want to run uh, best effort workloads such as a Unix-based system on top of the microkernel, then you do have to care about performance because uh, the microkernel introduces um, a lot of more um, privilege switches and uh, address space switches. And if privilege level switches and address space switches are expensive, which they used to be up until very recently, and you have a lot of them, then you have a performance problem. And that's why uh, microkernel-based um, Unix systems used to suck in performance up to very recently. So for example, one of the poster child benchmarks used these days for virtualization is kernbench, which basically compiles the Linux kernel a number of times. And in this benchmark, this benchmark is very I.O. heavy and uh, co context switch heavy. And in this benchmark, Unix systems based on microkernels do not excel, usually, because of the uh, added privilege level switches and context switches. So you you have to care about that, and um, that's why so much effort went into it. No. But... Um Coming back to the to the evolution, so um, so far we've only sp um, uh, spoken about real-time workloads and um, that you cared specifically about real-time uh, properties of the system, but over time the focus of the, the research shifted more to uh, security. You said earlier that the one thing that pretty much all L4 like kernels have added over the time is some some sane way of uh, ensuring that you can build secure systems on it. Um, so, how how did that change happen? Was was real time just um, research to the end, or um, how did the shift to security come about? So, hmm, I'm not that much into. I don't know enough about research politics to give a definitive answer. 
but I would guess that uh, research grants usually somehow have to fit into the current uh, fate, fates and uh, fashions. And uh, security came into fashion at the end of the 90s because of the internet and because everything was going to be connected. And that's why um, there was more research money in security, perhaps. But I wouldn't know for sure why that switch occurred. We certainly noticed early on that microkernel-based systems and the isolation that they provide can be beneficial for security. And we did some research in that area, or have been doing that research in that area for very long. But um, going full on on security happened only in the 2000s, I guess. Yeah, we basically used real, so I basically used real time and security as an excuse to work with cool operating systems. So like I could work with microkernels. I wouldn't say that one is more important than the other. I think that's a fair justification. Um, don't we all? Um, okay, um, Flo, do you have any questions about the history? Uh, no, that was very complete history. <laughs> very complete. Um, <laughs> a bridge. <laughs> because, um, I mean, it, we could probably talk about this forever, but um, there's only so much time. Um, there is, I mean, there was one big shift in the project that you started at um, the university. And that is that at some point it stopped being a university project and started being a can concept commercial project. And um, so how long do you have your own company now? We founded in 2012, so it's eight years now. And uh, how does the difference between working in academia and uh, working on the same project in, in the commercial work world feel like? Well, for me, it's totally different because these days I'm the business guy and not the technical guy anymore. Others have taken over the technical work and they are doing a much better job of, of it than I did. So that's the first difference. But also it's... Uh, so. Connected with that, it's a learning experience for me because I had to learn a lot of things that I didn't care about earlier, and but that I should have learned. So, for example, I really only learned to sell stuff when I um, when I needed to do it at Can Concept, and no one else did it. But uh, and when I really learned how to do it, I regretted that I didn't learn to sell myself and sell my research and sell my ideas better earlier on. So that's a skill set that I guess. Uh, people should learn earlier how to be convincing, how to um, present yourself and how to ask others for an investment or a purchase into your technology. And so, yeah, apart from that, well, the project is still an open source project. So this hasn't changed. What has changed is the way that we do development around it. Um, we provide as a company commercial support for the open source operating system. And there are also uh, certain things that are not directly related to the, um, to the operating system itself. So to the source code of the OS um, that we don't share. So for example, uh, CanConcept is working um, or is concentrating a lot, focusing on 
applications that require certification in some some fashion. So applications, um, for example, that require safety certification or security certification. And in order to do that, in order to be certifiable, we have to um, we had to adapt our development style. There needed to be reviews. There needed to be a process model. There needed to be tests. There needed to be documentation. All the kind of stuff that you elect not to care about when you work at, at the university. And um, that's something that we had to introduce and that we are now selling commercially. So that's the main difference, I guess. I still remember the, the development model at uh, the university, which was a very, let's call it, democratic uh, development model. So everyone got their chance to commit something and then get yelled at if it was bad. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we kept the yelling part, but we don't allow anyone to commit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so, but the, the, the main... So, you basically still operate in this in this vision from the the start of all of this so you, you still have um, legacy applications that customers want in a basically a linux vm you would call it now and um, for all the applications people really care about either for um, real-time properties or security properties you run them outside of the linux directly on top of the microkernel Yes, ideally that's what we do. So uh, one thing that is different in with L4RE, our project, uh, from other microkernel-based operating systems is that we do not strive to be a desktop operating system of our own. So unlike, for example, Gnode OS and their derivatives, we don't have a desktop version of L4RE. If you want to see something on your desktop, you use a Linux virtual machine for that. And um, and then there's the critical parts that run directly on top of L4RE that provide some kind of um, security or safety properties. Um, but it turns out that many customers uh, mm, try to minimize the stuff that runs natively on top of the microkernel to the extent that there's very little of it. Only very the, the absolute minimum of uh, trustworthy software is developed anew. And most stuff is just uh, run inside virtual machines. That's the most common use case that we that we encounter. And it's kind of sad. We have very few customers. I think we have only one customer who writes native software uh, on top of L4RE and who um, is also very good at it. All the other customers um, start working on on Linux APIs inside virtual machines and we've just provided an environment for them that has the properties that they need. And um, so although I would like more customers to, to use more native things and to allow us to develop cool native things, uh, the reality is that uh, this seldomly happens. So what we do develop and run natively these days is mostly uh, operating systems components that multiplex stuff or that isolate stuff and pr provide some level of communication between um, different virtual machine instances. So it's all very virtual machine centric these days. Yeah, I understand. So I think this is also a use case that people can understand. So before they had multiple machines with 
each running a Linux on it, and then later they have one system that still runs multiple Linux uh, instances on it, but has a very strict isolation between uh, the VMs, and you can give some guarantees, I guess, about the isolation properties. Yeah, exactly. So we want to make it basically a tractable problem to uh, derive the level of isolation between two compartments, we call them. Compartments can be a single virtual machine or a collection of virtual machines or a collection of native uh, user-level servers. And uh, we want to be able to make promises what the level of isolation or cooperation among these compartments can be down to the later down to the lowest bit or piece of hardware uh, through which they could communicate theoretically um, so do you have an example of a of a product or some application that was built using l4re Oh yes, these days we have a couple of nice products. Um, well, actually, the company was started with a very nice thing. It was uh, started when uh, Deutsche Telekom developed a uh, smartphone for governmental use. This was a project called Simco 3. Um, that was actually the starting point of Can Concept. Uh, there's an entire interesting story around that uh, alone. Uh, how this technology transfer into Deutsche Telekom started and how CanConcept was built around it. There's an entire lore about it with lots of um, hopes and uh, uh, also lots of unwarranted hopes around it. <laughs> and um, so this actually came to market, this product. There was a smartphone that ran two copies of Android and uh, one of them was securely VPN'd into a government network and you could use it to uh, do voice communication and email uh, up to a certain secrecy level. I guess it was VSNFD, which is basically the NDA equivalent for government secrets. And the other uh, Android VM you could use to di dial into the hotel Wi-Fi and browse Facebook and play Angry Birds. And um, this was a nice product and we put a lot of love into it and um, but it wasn't commercially successful unfortunately well for us it was for can concept it was but not for Deutsche Telekom and so they eventually stopped doing it uh, but this was how we started the company and then this use case of having uh, different application domains for different levels of um, confidentiality for government applications, this became a common theme and that we support up to this day. So in the high assurance security application domain, we have a number of customers that do variants of this. For example, we have a customer who does the same thing with a laptop. So you have a Windows laptop, which actually runs two copies of Windows. Again, one is securely VPN'd into the government network and the other one you use it to dial into the hotel Wi-Fi. Um, this is from a customer called Genua, and they're quite successful with it. So it's not uncommon these days that we visit a new prospect customer and tell them about our success stories, and then they turn the machines around. It turns out that they are using one of these laptops. So this is actually a pretty cool story for us. And 
Um, then there's also companies building uh, data diodes, uh, application gateways, VPN gateways based on this technology. So that's how we continue to work in the high assurance security domain. And apart from that, we try to enter other domains that require certification. And there, uh, I think most work these days is in the automotive application domain. There are a lot of interesting use cases for hypervisors in cars these days. And um, so, for example, uh, one of the use cases is that most cars are connected to the internet somehow these days. And if you are connected, you also have an attack surface towards the internet. And um, the isolation between the um, safety-related components of the car and the internet better be good. And as more and more functions are connected to the internet, this isolation, yeah, um, well, the computers providing this kind of isolation also get stronger. You have, and, and virtualization is definitely a use case there. And um, so that's one of the use cases we have in the car. In automotive, can concept works with a company called Electrobit. They are the software arm of Continental, which is a tier one automotive supplier and when you buy a hypervisor from them, then usually you get ours these days. And they have some, I can't tell which cars, but there are cars uh, which use our hypervisor driving around. And so that's very satisfying as well. And then we also have use cases that are not really certification related, but where the customer just um, wanted to be really, really sure that nothing bad can happen. For example, we have a customer that builds a kitchen oven um, that is internet connected because you know you you need to know whether the chicken is ready by looking at your smartphone. So uh, um, they have a, an oven that runs two copies of uh, Linux. One uh, is for controlling the oven functions and the other one is for connectivity and there needs to be isolation among them. That's what we can provide there. I don't know how I feel about this. Uh, I'm conflicted. Uh, so, what do you do when you want to see whether your chicken is ready? Uh, yeah, <laughs> the light in my oven is actually off, so I have to. I, I don't know. I will you never have, know. You have to take ah. your smartphone and shine a light into the oven. <laughs> exactly, that's the level I operate in. Uh, okay. Um, um, I, I lost my train of thought here, thinking okay. about the, um, the But maybe smart a little oven. bit more serious about this oven thing. Um, so there's, uh, you said there's two Linux VMs running. So one is mm -hmm. uh, to control the oven, and the other one was, what? Uh, so I, I'm having trouble imagining imagining the not so security relevant part here. Um, well, the other part is the one connected to the internet, and the idea is that if this part gets attacked then it can get cracked, but the oven still needs to function. It must be impossible for an attacker to switch on the oven, for example. Ah, okay. And so, so the, the attacker model includes that one of the VMs is completely taken over by a remote attacker. Okay, so I have the, let's call it the, 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 the colorful VM that shows my chicken, the image of my chicken. Um, and that can be attacked and uh, nobody cares, basically. Um, and then there's the the other, the secure VM um, 
that actually changes settings of the oven. Exactly. And that should never be uh, taken over. Mm -hmm. Ah, I see. Yeah. Okay. So one thing I remember is that um, your version of L4, when it was still called L4 Fiasco, uh, supported many architectures. Which CPU architectures do you support these days? Except these for days ovens. We <laughs> <laughs> these days we support x86, ARM, and MIPS, all in 32-bit and 64-bit variants, and all with or without hardware virtualization extensions. Even on MIPS? Yes, well, we don't have L4 Linux for MIPS, so there's no para virtualization okay. on MIPS. But um, a full virtualization is available on MIPS as well. Unfortunately, we don't have any customers these days who use MIPS. But, yeah, the port is there's functioning nonetheless. I think there's a good chance that uh, MIPS can have some customers in the future, given that oh, really? at least one country is still spends a lot of money on their own MIPS chips. The The whole Chinese technology stack um, is MIPS. Unless they started switching to uh, RISC-V yet. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. So RISC-V, of course, is something that we um, are looking at as well. And I guess that we will have, we will commercially support it when it's available, which could be very soon, actually. Um, okay, so Flo, do you have other questions? You're also doing uh, stuff for the community in Dresden, um, or at least you started uh, talking about a microkernel or systems community, I think you call it, um, for quite a lot, uh, for quite some time. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? So, what are the goals? Why, why do you want to create a community? I think this came mostly out of uh, the observation that there's a lot of cool stuff going on in Dresden around operating systems, but very little of this is known. And I think it should be known, there should, it should be a well-known thing about Dresden for various reasons. The first one is that I want to um, make systems an interesting topic for new students. It's important that... Um, students decide to pursue operating systems um, because, uh, well, the entire, all the companies in Dresden that do operating systems depend on this. Uh, also, I think it should be known that this industry is here. I think we are um, a pretty large operating systems industry in Dresden. Uh, it's probably hundreds or maybe even already thousands of people working in operating systems related jobs in Dresden. And um, it is an, an entire industry which uh, is kind of a key factor for Dresden. And when people talk about IT and Dresden, they shouldn't think of, or well, they, of course, they can also think about uh, artificial intelligence and IoT and stuff. But at the same time, they should also think about operating systems because that's a highly relevant Dresden industry. And the final thing is that I want to create... Uh, uh, positive news about Dresden. I think this is important for uh, getting um, yeah, non-locals to start working in Dresden as well. So in general, I think that we should, as a community, we should be visible 
um, and um, and known. And the uh, the short-term goals are that um, this fact or these facts are at least known to local educators, so that they continue to support systems education at the universities in and around Dresden. And likewise to politicians that make decisions about these kinds of things um, in the local area. But also I wouldn't be against Dresden being known as a center of excellence in this area f uh, in, a, in a wider circle, in let's say in the federal government in Berlin or whatever. So I'm taking every opportunity that I have to make this known. And um, I think that we already have been partially successful in, in getting the word out. So uh, I was able to um, modify the content of speeches of uh, some of the uh, high-level IT personnel of the federal government. And uh, I think they start uh, taking notice of the sisters community here in Dresden. Yeah, so out of, these, out of this motivation, I uh, started asking around whether uh, other companies and other uh, research institutes doing operating systems in Dresden would be interested in creating a more formal community so that we can appear as larger. We are pretty disconnected and there are lots of small players uh, next to a couple of large players and um, I would like us to be mm, visible as a single community um, and I do think that we have some joint interests in that um, and that's why I tried gathering people uh, and doing joint activities such as uh, having common ads and uh, starting uh, joint presentations and so on. That's the level of uh, engagement we are talking about here right now. I'd like to grow this further. I'm right now. I'm um, regularly visiting other um, research and industry clusters that we have in and around Dresden. So, for example, there are clusters around automotive and around. Um, stuff for railways and I'm trying to learn what they are doing to make their industries visible and successful and um, adapt some of their ideas in order to yeah, pursue the goals that I mentioned. Uh, I totally agree. I think there's uh, lots of shared interest, especially around the university. Um, I think having a functional um, uh, operating system chair at the university is a big asset for all companies here that do something that do something with operating systems. Um, maybe more direct questions. Do you take interns? Yes, we do actually. So we do have an internship program, and we take both interns on a master's level and also postgraduate interns, and we had quite some successes with that so we had already a f yeah some a number of interns that we are we're extremely happy with and that's why that's something that we are going to pursue in the future as well do you take interns uh with us he means uh, our employer and uh, yes we do uh -huh. but yeah um i think it's also important um 
so for me working in the previous company at amazon uh, i think taking interns was also a very successful way of um, both attracting people to dresden and also gaining um, or building up people with the right skill set over time because uh, what we do is pretty uh, specialized there's almost a zero percent chance of hiring someone that is um, um, already good to go from the start and uh, building up people is is the reliable way of having great competent people yeah yeah that's i guess the main thing that uh, keeps all of us at, up at night how to find motivated and good operating systems people and yeah i agree having interns is a good way to grow some so this so this maybe um is a bit too open-ended, but um, there was this uh, influential rant, um, systems research is dead, now what was it called? Um, you know what I mean. Um, it was in the oh, early 2000s. It was back already, wasn't it? By Rob Pike? Uh, yeah, 2001, I think, or two th around 2000. Um, and, so um, 20 years back. 20 years back, ah, oh, damn it. Um, and there's one thing in it that's really true, and it is that... Um, the uh, just take Linux approach. So you don't think about building a system that is tailor-made for what you need. You just take Linux, which gets you 80% there, and then this basically good enough. And um, what, what, do, what would you say to, to people that have this approach? <clears throat> I would say well it depends on what kind of people these are are these um, application developers or are these researchers um, I would think about researchers researchers hmm well I lost some of my high bro uh, microkernel elitism uh, when I started working in the industry so these days I would probably be more forgiving and would invite anyone to find an interesting research topic uh, in any kind of um, substrate operating system. And Linux is fine as well. That's probably what I would say. But uh, I would also invite everyone to be a little bit bolder than that and try entirely new things and start systems from scratch. I think we've seen some very cool ideas in the past 20 years after Pike's paper um, that built systems from scratch. So for example, Singularity OS is one of these examples and I'm forgetting some others, but there were more. And I still think there's stuff to be learned from taking yeah, a grander approach than just modifying what's there. No, I would also say there has been. I mean, the the I think the wild operating system past is over. So um, I think people have learned uh, some things how to build systems, and um, but there there's still innovation. I think I'm also thinking about the um, uh, Fuchsia. I can't pronounce it the English way. And German, in Germany, we would say Fuchsia, the Google microkernel project, which looks uh, super interesting and. Uh, I'm eager to learn when they will make a product out of it. Um, yeah, I think the 
one thing that I would say, um, the, the beauty of doing it yourself is uh, that you learn a lot um, and you also realize what you don't know. <laughs> Uh, far more than if you start uh, adding something to Linux. And I think I would also say that now is a better time to write a new operating system than in the past, because uh, you can start with RISC-V. It's a very simple architecture. Uh, it's very friendly. Um, there's lots of documentation about everything. There's the internet. Um, every question you have is answered in some weird, uh, in the weird or OSDEF wiki or uh, someplace else. So I think I would totally motivate people to do this because there are so many resources. Agree. One question left that we get asked uh, every time uh, or sometimes, um, and that is if I would want to learn about these things, so where do I go? So what are the resources? If I'm interested in L4E, um, L4 in general, um, wh where do I look? So there's for L4RE, there's a homepage, L4RE.org. It doesn't look very nice, but I think it's a valid starting point for digging into um, the actual technology. And I think it also has links to the relevant uh, papers that uh, from explain the principles from which we derive many of the things that we, that we do. Um, there's canconcept.com, which is even less useful uh, but it does have some interesting links as well towards uh, where to get the source code and where to get documentation. On canconcept.com, there's also uh, there's a link to canconcept's GitHub, where we publish development versions um, of our software, whereas releases are still published through l4re.org, open source releases. And um, I guess... Hmm. I guess that's the main points to look at. I will also add the um, papers list of the operating systems uh, chair. I think this is also for anyone interested in digging into the history. Uh, I think there are some really interesting uh, papers in there from the past. Uh, I think for everyone who wants to know... Our homepage. Ah, awesome. Um, for everyone who wants to learn about the Zimco 3 story you alluded to, I think you, you have to come to Dresden and drink beer with all of us. Um, if you want to do that, and if you also want uh, to, to find more resources, there's ukvli.org, uh, which is the entry point to find our uh, very irregular meetup. Um, it's currently unclear when there will be the next meetup for obvious reasons. Uh, besides that, but that's the same uh, as always. It's always unclear when you make. Yeah, but it's even more <laughs> unclear now. <laughs> Other than that, um, please. That we actually had a meetup planned for, I don't know, last week. We had a, we had a meetup planned basically when uh, the uh, quarantine started. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You should do a virtual meetup. I, I will join with beer. <laughs> Maybe we should do that. Um, okay, where was I? Um, if you want to leave feedback on this episode on thislog.show in the show notes, um, you find a link to our ISC channel and uh, Matrix chat room, which are basically this, uh, which are the same. Um, you can tweet at us at ukvli on Twitter, and um, there's also an email floating around on thislog.show where you can write us emails. And with 
that, I would say thank you, uh, Michael, for taking the time. Um, it thank was you, interesting. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I feel that there is uh, a follow-up at some point. Um, but let's see. And uh, with that, goodbye, everyone. And see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you, thank Michael. You.